Well, my God's expecting 15 minutes of reading. Always a wise My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you very much for inviting us to come and participate. Uh, it's a great panel. <laughs> These guys are in, in my highest esteem, and, and I'm very honored to be here. I also want to thank those everybody that came this morning for coming, and particularly those that I sponsor. It will be noted that you are here. Those that are not, that will also be noted. But I, uh, a, a topic, the family afterwards, if you've been sober over 30 years, and Pat been in Allen on over 30 years, is, is a pretty broad scope to get in with 15 minutes. Uh, because at the very start, there was more tenseness, anxiety, anger, and hurt feelings in our family after I first got sober. And as time goes by, that has lessened significantly, magnitudes less, but at a certain level still exists. Uh, <laughs> Pat and I have three children. Uh, the oldest boy, Tim, was born in 1954, uh, Michael was born in 1957, and Ann, our youngest, was born in 1964. And uh, so Ann was eight years old when I got sober, and she doesn't like for me to describe her this way, but she was kind of like a fawn in a forest fire. She just was ready, you know, and, and with no way to turn. And uh, uh, she started... At, at my first AA meeting, I met this guy who became, and still is, although he passed away 31 years ago, my, my spiritual advisor. His name was Frank Giroux. And I met him and I trusted him. And I started setting up a tables and chairs at our home group meeting twice a week, and I started to take an Ann with me. And I didn't know why she wanted to go, but she was looked, she looked forward to going. And that was fine with me. And uh, and then one night I was uh, I was setting up the tables and chairs, and I looked up, and Frank was who helped. I was actually helping him set up the meeting. Frank was putting the literature out on the stage, and Anne came up and stood beside him. And Frank dropped his right hand and started putting the literature out with his left hand. And Anne stood there for a little bit, and she reached up, and she took his right hand. And that was the first time that I had seen the trust start. And then Frank showed her how. So you'd see them there putting the literature out, holding hands, Anne with her right hand putting the literature out, Frank with his left hand. And uh, she cut the cakes at... Uh, at the break, and she was a part of Alcoholics Anonymous and Recovery. We tried to get her to go to Alateen. She went, but she, uh, that didn't take. Uh, and uh, later on, uh, Maria took her into Al-Anon, and uh, she still is active member of Al-Anon, and uh, uh, we talk every day, probably sometimes twice a day, 
about spiritual, she calls and whatever problem she's having or I'm having, we talk about, we talk about the spiritual answers that, that work and that we need. And uh, she said the other day that our second son, Michael, who, uh, he focused on, he's, he's, he's more intelligent than the rest of us. And, and uh, he got a couple undergraduate degrees and a couple graduate degrees. And, and he retired when he was 45. And when he was 47, his wife had a baby. So he's gone back to work now. <laughs> For a while, as a result of, uh, take Kevin off the absent tedious. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, Mike, Michael joined CODA at a certain part of his life, uh, Codependence Anonymous, and, and after three or four cycles of taking my inventory, he got into meditation and he discovered an Eastern guru that he has great faith in and, and uh, he became a devotee, he meditates three hours, three hours a day and uh, he's a very spiritual guy. He, he met a young lady in that, uh, uh, that group and they got married and they live in, she was in, from New Zealand and they got married and, and moved to New Zealand where he just built a, a 4,000 square foot house for the three of them. We have a, a, a grandson, thank you, who we spend a lot of email time sending pictures of and, and uh, they're doing fine and we're going to go to New Zealand in December. I hope with all the other, with the kids and, and have a, a family get together then. Uh, our oldest son was the only one that had any inkling to drink or, he has more than an inkling to smoke pot. Uh, uh, he did it all, he used it all. He and, he and his wife were, uh, and uh, my granddaughter were kind of at each other's throats and Pat said to me one night after it was a particularly bad night at their house, and Pat said, I wish you could talk to Timmy about his drinking. And, uh, and, and, uh, I said, okay. And I called him and asked him to have lunch with me, and, uh, and, uh, he knew something was up, and when we got there, uh, he said, yeah, what's up, Dad? And I said, well, your mom. <laughs> wanted me to talk to you about your drinking. And I have wanted to talk to you about your drinking. And I don't think your mom will ever understand. But your dad understands, and I want you to know that when you wake up in the morning and you've got to have a drink, I understand that. I also understand once you've had the drink, then you've got to have some more. I understand that, and it's asking too much to ask somebody to quit that. And it's asking the impossible to ask them to cut back. But you know, I reached a place where I wanted to stop, and I found a place to help me. And if you ever reach that place, I want you to know that your mom and I will do everything we can to 
to get you the same kind of help we got. But in the meantime, have at it, my boy. I love you, and I do not want your drinking to interfere with our friendship. I'll never ask you to stop. And he said, well, what do you want? And I said, I want to take my granddaughter to Alateen. Now, Timmy got big tears in his eyes and, and said, would you do that for us? We need, that would be so great. And so my teenage 13-year-old granddaughter and I made Monday night our date night. And by then, Pat was wealthy enough that I could afford <laughs> to buy her nice dinners. We went to every nice restaurant in the Phoenix area. And then there was a charter hospital over in Mesa that had an al meeting, an Alateen meeting, an AA meeting. And I'd take her back to the charter hospital where she'd go to the Alateen meeting. Her mom and her grandma would go to the al meeting, and I'd go to the AA meeting. Now my granddaughter just had... Uh, my, our first great-grandson, uh, she married just a wonderful guy. If you were going out to hunt somebody to marry your granddaughter, this is the guy you would come back with. And, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just, that's just super. And, and uh, uh, if you talk to her, she'll say, oh, yes, my grandpa and I bonded when we were going to Alateen, you know. And we did. And uh, uh, our oldest son was here to visit us not very long ago. And at the airport, he said, you'll never understand how much I love you and mom. I am so proud that you're my parents. And uh, uh, I believe in you and I love you. And I said, well, we feel the same way about I said, you couldn't possibly feel the way about me that I do about you. And uh, I thought, well, that's a, uh, uh, that's a good thing. Part of the family afterwards is Pat and I. Uh, <laughs> and that's been going on for quite a while. Uh, and um, most initially, the solutions we found to relationship were solutions she brought home from Al-Anon. And uh, one of them was that we can both be right. That we can both look at the same thing and have our own point of view. And I'll be right and you be right, because that's your point of view. Nobody has to be wrong. That was a major victory. <laughs> then she was going to leave me when we were three years sober for about the 8,000 time and uh, I uh, I must be getting a co-op I uh, <laughs> uh, when she uh, she made it through liberal Kansas as she always, she always went home she always went through liberal and when she went through liberal it passed her mind I'm going back to Howard <laughs> and when she got home I knew when she got home, I waited an hour and called her. And uh, I, I said, how long have you been there? She said, about an hour. <laughs> I knew it. And uh, I said, don't leave me. What, 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 the, what the battle was then was she wanted me to promise I wouldn't speak at AA meetings on holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and 
And God, that's the only time you get asked when you're starting out. <laughs> they can't find real stupid, you know, and, and they take a substitute. And, uh, and anyway, I didn't, I, I was reluctant to make the promise, but when I called her, I said, we'll work this out somehow to both of our satisfactions. We'll, we'll both be right and it'll be okay. Um, <laughs> if, if we compromised, I don't know it yet. I, <laughs> I get to speak whenever she, you know, anyway. Uh, it's still kind of an issue, but it's, it's, it's not as big an issue. I don't speak very often at holidays now, and they get the newcomers to speak, and I understand that. Uh, but when she came back, the big thing was, she told me that we've been married 20 years, 23 years, and I've always threatened to leave you. Well, you've heard that for the last time. We're going to be together. I am not going to even think about leaving. We're going to stay and work it out. And I promised her that's what we were going to do, and that's what we've done. If you're going to split to solve the problem, and you don't split, the problem never gets solved. But if you stay and you're committed to stay, then you have to work the problems out. And they have been really honest to God's spiritual answers based on uh, uh, love for each other that uh, uh, has given us uh, a life magnitude better. Frank promised me if I, the first night I met him, he said, uh, if you will, uh, if you'll join us in AA and doing the things that we do, I promise that you will have a life magnitudes better than you ever dreamed of having. And it is magnitudes better. And, uh, and if we can say it's a gift, but the word gift isn't mentioned once in the first 164 pages of Alcoholics Anonymous. The word work is mentioned 47 times. And there's all kinds of synonyms like a strenuous epic. that makes the program work along with and the top of page 25 still make them up and nobody checks <laughs> on the top of page 25 in the book book it says but for the grace of God God's grace is God's unmerited gift of God's self to his creation. With that, the work works. Without it, we'd all be lost. I love you guys. Thank you for letting me speak. Now for the flip side. <clears throat> I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon, and I like to say that because I got here and I was not grateful. I was mad, and I was full of self-pity, which works really, really well. Um, anyway, um, Howard and I had a deal, and he wasn't going to tell my story, any part of my story, because he has a big story, and mine's just a little story. And he did it, so anyway... <laughs> 
Mine's going to be really short. But anyway, um, I was not one of the lucky people that knew about Al-Anon before he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. He came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, his sponsor came home with him the first month that he was going to AA and said to me, I hope you're going to Al-Anon. And I said, why should I go to Al-Anon? He's not drinking now. And he said, how long have you been married? And I said, almost 20 years. And he said, and you've lived with him for 20 years doing the things you did? And um, you don't think there's anything wrong with you? <laughs> I was really offended because I thought, I follow the rules. I do what you're supposed to do. Everything's working good for me. If he would just die, my life would be better. <laughs> so I had that going on. And... Um, so I didn't really fuss with him about his drinking. At the end, I just kind of let him just drink because I thought the faster he gets it over with, I'll be out there. I mean, you know, I, I'll be out there. So I knew. I knew for a fact. Well, when I grew up, I will tell you that both my parents drank, and my dad did go to AA. He did not have any long-term sobriety, but he did go to AA. I didn't know anything about AA. I didn't even know alcoholism. I mean, I was... Didn't care. I don't know. I cared, but I just didn't know about alcoholism being a disease. But anyway, I know how to live with alcoholism. I don't know how to live with people that don't drink. So I knew that when Howard stopped drinking, our life would be fine. Everything would be fine. That was the only problem I could see. And he stopped drinking, and our life was not fine. It was horrible. It was just horrible. And I will tell you, the first year of his sobriety was the absolute worst year of my life. And part of it was because we had always played this good guy, bad guy game. And I was always the good guy because I don't drink, I follow the rules, I do what you're supposed to do, and he never did none of that. <laughs> so he was the bad guy. And so he started stopped drinking, and uh, I could tell that he was getting better. And it was real scary for me. I know about that knot in your stomach because... I was really afraid because he was starting to look good and I wasn't looking so good anymore. And so I knew that I was going to have to do something. And so the only something I had was Al-Anon. And I'm listening to him in the meetings and I'm thinking, they don't understand. <laughs> My first meeting, I mean, you know, I would like to say, I hear people come in and say they knew they were home at their first meeting. I did not know that. I went to my first meeting and I thought, my God, these people have problems. I can probably help them. <laughs> it kept me going back. It just, you know, whatever it takes. And it, did, it kept me going back until I could hear what I needed to hear. Because um, I was so sure that I was doing everything right. And I don't know who was talking about doing inventories, but I, it was Bob. Okay. This is our thing. We always argued in the kitchen. I don't know why, but this is where it always took place. And um, I was really angry with him, and I took his inventory. And um, he said to me, well, you've told me everything wrong with me. Is there anything wrong with you? Can you tell me one thing wrong with you? And I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> and I knew there was something wrong with that. I knew there was something wrong with that. There had to be one thing wrong with me. And I couldn't think of it. So, you know what? I had to go to meetings to hear what was wrong with me because I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. And um, as he talked about before, my only um, tool that I had at that time was when things weren't going the way that I thought they should go, um, 
I was going to leave. That was it. I'll just leave. I won't have to put up with this anymore. And I went to my sponsor and told her that I was going to leave. And she said to me, what, is he drinking? And I said, no, he's not drinking. But I just can't, I can't live this way. And uh, she was really very helpful. And she said to me, How, well, when did he start drinking? And I said, well, he was about 13 when he started drinking. She said, so he never learned to be part of a family. And he will learn that in AA. Give him five years. And I <laughs> almost hit her. Almost hit her. Five years? I've given 20 years and nothing's happened. And she was, she said, well, let me tell you this. It, you know, it takes a long time. She said a lot of time, you know, just to recover from the effects of the drinking takes a while. Because he had a couple other little things he was doing besides drinking. And, uh, but that's his story. And anyway, um, she said it takes about a year, you know, just to recover from the physical effects. And so you've got to give him some time to go to the meetings and stuff. Well, you know what this was? I was glad he was going to AA, but I didn't think he needed to go every night and every morning and every afternoon and every holiday. And this holiday thing was a big thing because our son just came home on the holidays from college, so that's the only time he's home. And I just didn't think it was quite right for him to be gone on the only time that Michael came home. But anyway, we had this discussion and uh, it wasn't pleasant, and uh, I never, uh, I had heard him talk about in Al-Anon that you don't have to react to everything your husband says, but I never quite got that down. It took a long time <laughs> that I had a choice about whether I was going to go to the, you know, react and say something that I was going to have to make amends for it, like, because I really hate making amends, especially when I think I'm right. So I really had to... Um, take a look at that and uh, it wasn't a pretty picture because I react and it doesn't do any good. It just makes me feel really, really bad and how does it change? <laughs> I like that. Anyway, they said I wasn't able to change anybody but myself and uh, I, ha I really had some work to do because I had been a, a people pleaser all my life and uh, I could get along, you know, I can get along. And my dad used to say to me, you know, I'm doing something for you that you'll never learn from anybody else. You will be able to go any place and get any kind of a job because you can get along with anybody. And I could, but I paid a price for that. And I didn't know I paid a price for that. I didn't know that until I heard him talking about it in Al-Anon. Although we had gone to a doctor with our daughter when she was having problems. And um, Howard said to me in the doctor's office, where are you going to sit? And I said, wherever he tells me to sit. And he looked at me so disgusted. The doctor just looked at me so disgusted. And he said, oh, I bet you were a good little girl and the teachers just loved you. And I thought, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> anyway, that was the first time anybody ever even acted like there was anything wrong with people pleasing. And uh, I really had to take a look at that. And uh, I never felt good. And sometimes Howard would come home uh, and I would be standing in the kitchen crying. And he would say, well, what's the matter with you? You, you know, I've got you a car. You don't have to work. I don't understand. And I said, I don't either. You know, but the part of it was I always gave him and whatever he wanted to do, that's what we did. Whatever anybody else wanted to do, that's what we did. I never said what I wanted to do. And little by little, I just gave myself away. And then I cried, which I probably do now. And, uh, 
Anyway, I had to learn to stop. Uh, my sponsor said to me, you have to start asking for what you want, which was a new idea for me, because I thought that was really selfish when I grew up. You didn't tell anybody what you wanted. If they loved you enough, they knew what you wanted. <laughs> Everybody doesn't know that. And uh, <laughs> she said, you have to ask for what you want. You know, and that was a new concept, how to ask for what I wanted. And uh, I had to start saying what I wanted to do. Now, when I start saying what I wanted to do, I thought that meant I got to do it. But it doesn't mean that at all. It just means you get to say what you want to do. And uh, that was quite a thing. If I told you I didn't like something, I thought, well, you'll stop it. But they don't stop it. It just means you keep getting to say something. But every time I say something, and I have a lot to say. But anyway, when you say it, you know, you feel better because you did something. It's kind of... I really kind. I call it learning how to take care of myself, and I learned how to do that in Al-Anon, and after recovery. And I'm really glad that that uh, that he doesn't drink anymore. But like I said, the problems were enormous. And you know, I love what Bob said last night. They've been married 39 years, and they don't argue. Man, we still argue. We just argue better than we did before. <laughs> we don't have to. I mean, you know, somebody doesn't have to die for me to win the argument. <laughs> And the same way with Howard, because he's, he's a strong arguer. And this was something that happened to me that really helped me so much in, in sobriety was um, when he first started speaking, he would go to the Antelope Valley on, like, Wednesday night. And those of you from California know that's a long ways from L.A. on a weeknight when you've got to get up in the morning and go to work in the morning. And he didn't like to go by himself, and he never dawned on him to ask somebody else. He figured I should go with him. And... Um, after a few times, I don't want to go anymore. I don't want to go anymore. But he has really good reasons. And he comes home and says, we're going to go to Fresno this weekend. It'll really be nice. We'll go early. We'll have dinner. And, and it'll be nice. And I said, well, I don't want to go to Fresno. And he gave me all the reasons why we should go. Wouldn't it be If I go up there and I can help one family, isn't that a good thing? Well... Yeah, that's a good thing, but I still don't want to go. So I, I talked to my sponsor about it, and she said to me, you know what, because he's a strong arguer. He has a lot of good reasons. And I talked to my sponsor, and she said to me, I'm going to help you with this, because she knew Howard really well. And she said, this is what you're going to say. First, you're not going to get angry, because I got all my strength from anger, and before I could say anything to him, I had to get, like, really, really angry, and then I would say it, and then his reaction was, well, when she's not mad, it'll be over. It, you know, I'll get what I want, and that's the way it was. Anyway, so she said to me, first, you have to get really centered and not, not be angry. So, and then you're going to say to him, Howard, if it causes you pain for me not to go to Fresno, I love you enough to help you through the pain. <laughs> but I'm not going. Um, he, you know what? He, it was the first time I'd ever said no and really meant it. And he knew I really meant it. And I wasn't angry. And he looked like I hit him in the stomach. <laughs> he said he didn't, but he did. And you know what? He got, he got somebody else to go to Fresno. Oh, I said to her, well, I don't have a good reason for not going. And she said, you don't have to have a reason. No is a complete answer. That's all you have to say is no. And that's how I got in trouble. I would try to give him a better reason, and he had a better reason, and I just couldn't hang in there with the reason. 
So she said, you know, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. He got somebody else to go with him, and he was happy as Larry. I mean, you know, worked fine. So I got to stop doing all those things I didn't want to do. And so now I get to pick and choose, and I can say no when I don't want to go, and I can go when I want to go. That was a big thing for me, but uh, we would have never got there had he not gone to AA, and, or, and I hadn't gone to Al-Anon. And I said to him the other day, I think, you know what, it takes both of us to make a whole person, half of you and half of me, and we can be a whole person. Because he has answers that I need, and I have answers that he needs. And, and a lot of times he uses my Al-Anon answers in his talk, and I can't believe it. But anyway... He's keeping track. <laughs> anyway, um, he was talking about our kids. Our kids never gave us any trouble. When he was drinking, our kids were great. And uh, some of the people I sponsor have trouble with their kids, and I say to them, you know, I don't know what to tell you because we didn't have that trouble. And they said, how come? And I said, because they were scared of their dad. I mean, if he said don't do it, they did not do it. And I was talking to my older son the other day when he was here, and I said, Timmy, this is what I tell people. And he said, well, it's the truth, Mom. <laughs> they were, he would just say, he, was, he came from a family that was, his father was a disciplinarian. My dad wasn't. He never hit me in his life. And so hitting was not what I did. And th they weren't afraid of me, but they would, I was, well, I wouldn't say I was the one that made it okay, but anyway. They were afraid, and they might. I mean, you know, they minded. And I've told you my silly rule about we always had to eat dinner every day at 5 o'clock, and everybody was there at 5 o'clock, or they were in bad trouble. And, uh, but that worked. You know, that worked. The kids were always there. They always, um, I was, I was so, such a martyr anyway, but they were always worried about me. They were always worried about me, which, you know, that's kind of sick now, but at the time it served a purpose. <laughs> and... Uh, it was just like, you know what? You don't know. You don't know. You do the best you can. And I think one of the best things, one of the best things that happened was finding out that alcoholism was a disease because there hadn't been a lot of education about alcoholism before the, in the 70s. And I sure didn't think it was a disease. I had a hard time accepting that, that it was a disease. I really thought that he was just doing that to get back at me. But if you would have, I knew he drank when I married him. And, you know, you couldn't talk me out of marrying him. It was like my father talked to me about his drinking, and I said, uh, I knew. I, I was like a moth going to the flame. I mean, I was marrying him no matter what. And I knew he was in trouble, and I knew that I could fix him, and that he just wouldn't drink that much once we got married. It didn't work. But it was a good idea. <laughs> anyway. Um, we have, well, we have a really great, we have a really great life. And... Um, our kids are great. And uh, Tim, uh, the one that Howard was saying, he talked to about his drinking. Well, he does a little controlled drinking is what he does. And I'm not worried about it because, you know, we have a really good relationship, and that's not my business. Whether he decides to drink or not, I still love him, and we still have a good relationship. So, you know what? I learned that now and on. They can, they can do They don't have to do what I want them to do for me to be okay with them. So, I love you. I think you're great for all getting up so early in the morning and being here. Then I love you, and thanks for being here.
be. I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning, nice to be here. Howard, I think it's unfair that they have those kind of sneaky tools. <laughs> just, they don't use violence, but they just kind of have a light form of torture. That just, uh, <laughs> the Geneva Convention, I don't think, would approve some of the, some of the different things. <laughs> the family afterwards. Um, I got sober on December 11th, or December 10th, 1967. I was married on December 2nd, 1967. So I got sober on our honeymoon. I was thinking. We were married. Uh, <laughs> we were married. Uh, when you have a couple of A and L, you're not allowed to use any pronouns or, you know, that include the word I, I, you know, because they'll interpret it that I was being self-centered. It isn't that you're not exactly a person. It's just that you just give up certain freedoms. That, uh, and personal pronouns is one of them. Uh, It's a small price to, uh, to pay. The, uh, I was thinking if we were having a panel, wouldn't it be nice to have the Brookses and uh, the Whites and uh, Jack and you up here? You know, so many heroes that we had in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Texas is one of the great centers of Pat and Jack were uh, one of the couples that we got to know and learned to use as an example. Uh, it's funny that you're asking people to talk about the family afterwards after we're in the winter of our relationship. You know, we're, uh, AA in Al-Anon is different today than it was when we came in. The principles aren't any different, but when we came in uh, in the late 60s, uh, it was married. It was uh, almost everybody had a career. Uh, their pants were on fire. They were in trouble at home. They were in trouble at their career. And they had generally been churched. Uh, <laughs> no, just the way what? They had, you know, and, and they had, it looked like if you could get them back, you know, they used to talk about return to normalcy. Uh, they had a place where they were kind of willing to go back before their lives fell apart. Today, significantly, that I see in the programs is we're seeing people who are unchurched, uh, they got in trouble so early, they often didn't f uh, finish their education, they often do not have a career, and they generally are not married. So you're dealing with a different subset uh, and a lot less stability. And, uh, and I think they're, you know, in our society today, supports addiction more than recovery. I really think when I came in, society supported recovery more than addiction. But today, I am so glad they didn't, I mean, today you can sit in your room and you can do porn, gamble, and order medications over the internet. <laughs> now, I know I would not have done that. Because <laughs> I'm a moderate guy. And uh, you can get mortgages for 120% of the value of your home. 
and they will send you credit cards that you can get up to fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in debt. Uh, we couldn't get into as much trouble. Uh, society had more boundaries, and we personally had more boundaries, and it was just so. Today, if you wonder why it's tougher, it's tougher. The wind is blowing. 45 miles an hour. I mean, and when you're playing golf in a 45 mile an hour wind, it's different than when you're playing golf when there is a mild breeze. And so that's different today. And a lot of people just don't have the contact. I, I go to a sober house meeting, and a lot of the men just don't have a sense of who they want to be in their own lives. What kind of a man do you want to be? They don't have a big enough context. You know, their context is the next three or four hours or the next three or four days which is not a big enough context in which to live your life. So Linda was 22 when we were married. I was 24. Uh, we're newly married. She's gone to Al-Anon. She has no longer, uh, her uh, Al-Anon date is July 27th, August 27th, <laughs> and mine December because they don't count slips. Uh, <laughs> got to get a few in. I mean, I don't, I mean, the, uh, Scott Peck uh, wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. Uh, he has a chapter on love, which I would recommend that almost everybody read. It's a great chapter. And in there he talks about the different stages of love, the erotic form of love. And most of us, a lot of people who are new in the program, they think that the erotic stage of love is love. No, that's falling in love. What I like is the last kind of definition where you really hold and want what's spiritually good for each other. And eventually that's where, that's where Linda and I have gotten in the program of AA. We battled for the first seven or eight years in our marriage. Uh, I was at AA all the time. You know, they argued about being overactive. I was overly active. I needed to be. Uh, we had children. Uh, we have three boys that are, uh, uh, I said we, we have three boys, and uh, <laughs> I want credit. Uh, they are 37, 35, and 26. They are sober 19, 15, and 8 years. So we went through a lot of experiences with those three. My wife is a carrier. None of us were alcoholic when we met her. Uh, one of the gifts that Linda and I had is we came from stable families. Uh, you know, we had examples of people who stayed married their whole lives. Of the people I went to high school with, uh, we're all still married. Of the you know seven or eight couples we hung out with, no one's divorced. A little of that's the Midwest, a little of it, but, but a lot of it is there's some conditioning in that process where you're conditioned to stay and resolve, and uh, that has been an advantage for us. Uh, early on in our relationship, uh, we agreed not to use the word divorce. So it's not going to be a word that we can use. Can't have it in our conversation. If we start to use that, that's going to end up being, you know, that's going to hurt us. Not an option. And uh, today, 
Every marriage will have enough texture and problems in it that will give you an out if you are looking for an out. And every marriage has enough positive about it for you to stay if you are willing to stay. The attraction that you had for each other when you fell in love is evidence that there's enough physical and emotional compatibility for there to be a marriage. I mean, you know, the, the dumb way we have all been attracted to each other, you know, at 21 and 24. I mean, now they don't get married until they're 50, but I mean, <laughs> you know, waiting for God to wood burn it on their foreheads. And I have, you know, uh, uh, you know, we weren't, didn't have some great gift. We, we were attracted to each other. We loved each other. We had a lot in common. And then we had a workout. We went through a fa our first eight years. And Linda was more, I really think I was more satisfied with you than you were with me. And uh, that's why I don't like to travel with Linda. Everybody, when I'm, when I'm, people like her better than me. And when I'm alone, I get more attention. I mean, uh, so for the first eight years, and I was much more out there and much more unmanageable. She tried to change some of the things that she viewed as the problem in her marriage. At about eight years, we had a, each had a surrender experience. And we stopped banging on each other. And our marriage became mostly what it is today, uh, which is a love affair. And uh, the, uh, if you resolve, you know, if you have God in your home, uh, you're not the ultimate authority. And I'll tell you, having some spiritual dimension, whether it's whether it's your program or your sponsors or however we would des describe a power greater than yourself, allows some mystery and some non-resolution. If you are the authority, if you are self-directed, there is no higher authority. You've got to resolve it. And I really think the union, you know, that's why I think churches have blessed marriages. That's why I think in some churches it's a sacrament. There, there, there is an element of mystery. There is an element that our society honors that add, and I think it's different than living together. There is something different, sacred, that we honor about marriage that gives a grace, gives a space that is not there under other circumstances. And if you honor that, if you can recognize it, if you can, you don't have to resolve everything. And then today, Linda and I are like two separate people walking two feet apart. You know, you, over a period of time, you become 1.7 people. I mean, you really do. I mean, you, you just, there's something, you, you melt into each other. And that's a, it doesn't like, it's positive. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. It's not an unhealthy thing. It's not a, you know, not a, a unhealthy uh, dependency. But I want to emphasize that I, say, that I think most couples who, you know, uh, if we're looking, if you can bring the program into your marriage, the steps and the traditions, you've got spiritual tools to solve anything that you want to. And you will grow in that process. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of, we've had a Bank, you know, bankruptcy or near bankruptcy. We've got three children in recovery. You go through phases, you know, and aging is not the, you know, easiest sort of thing. Your sex life can wane. Your finances go up and down. You get health issues over a period of time. If you're going to be married, 
we'll be married 39 years next month, you're going to have some texture in that relationship. And it's going to be different. And I'll tell you, when guys are having trouble, they only have two places they look, work and their wives. You know, I'm unhappy. Well, it's either my job or my wife, never me. Okay? Women, almost entirely, normal, more normal, tend to look at the relationship. But we miss it when we look outside rather than inside. You know, when you've been, when you've been around a while and you're sponsoring people, uh, we have a tendency to, you know, I want to quit my job. And what a lot of us would advise them to do, why don't you get to a point where you don't have to leave, where you can work well enough and have enough, a good sense of what you're doing so you can stay or leave and then make the decision rather than having to make the decision that you have to leave. And that's what we, a little bit what you do in your own marriage. You know, because if you're looking at the other person, what you're doing is you're going to take a partial, accurate, negative inventory. And I've watched, you know, I just had one of my guys that I work with go through this and he's got a list. But it's only a partial list and he's not on it. I mean, it's just amazing to me. He's not on the list. You know, and he doesn't see anything wrong with not being on the list. Um, you live your life in relationship. Relationships are mirrors. The universe holds the mirror up and reflects you back to yourself. The major relationships in life, you to your parents, your parents, you as parents to your children, and you as spouses, are unavoidable. They are meant to be permanent. I don't think that marriage is supposed to be a death sentence, so if it's not, if it really is not working, I don't think, you know, that that should be the case. But in those relationships, because they are inescapable, the universe reflects you back to you. What they really are is schools. And the universe keeps saying, it's not working. This doesn't work. This is okay. Change this. Reduce this. Increase this. It's a school. I mean, if God and the universe wanted to get a message to us, how would they get it to us? Relationships. That's all there is. There isn't any, and most of us, in our in our un, in our dis-ease, didn't know how to change. So we keep finding people who will put up with our crap, and when they won't put up with our crap anymore, we trade them for other people, and our universes reduce. Well, it's just the opposite with recovery. Our universe expands because we start to learn how to live and be at peace. Marriage is a great responsibility. There are difficulties in it, uh, and it's wonderful. Thank you. Now for the flip side. Linda B. Good morning. My name is Linda Bazance, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I really had no idea this was going to affect me like this. Um, I'm sort of a little basket case up here. So, um, oh, there are advantages to going last. I guess one of them is you get to make corrections. <laughs> but the 
disadvantage is you're not needed. <laughs> I mean, wow, this has been um, incredible. Uh, I'm very emotional, so bear with me. And I have no idea what's going to come out, so bear with me, too. <laughs> when I came to Al-Anon, I came at, I was 21 years old, and we were not married. And um, Bob suggested to me that he was going to AA at this time. I did not know he was going at AA, to AA first. I was driving him to meetings, and it was because he had lost his license one more time. And I, but I didn't know we were going to meetings. He was going to meetings. So when he told me that he was going to AA, I was just delighted. And looking back on that, if, if I didn't know there was a problem, why would I be delighted? There's also a little extra part to that, is I was a psychiatric nurse working on an alcoholic treatment center unit. So if you're expecting something great today, you're not going to get it. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, um, I mean, denial was just all around me. I had, of course he was different. He wasn't like them. Um, so he suggested that I go to a meeting, and at first I didn't even understand that he wanted me to go because we weren't married. He would say to me, the wives are meeting in the basement, and I'm like, great, great idea, glad, go to it, you know. <laughs> and finally, you know, I said, do you want me to go? And he said, yeah, I think it would be a good idea. And so I started going for the only reason is that I like to look good. And a good wife would support her husband and go to those meetings. Therefore, sign me up. That's, what, that's why I went. And uh, that's why I went for a long time. I, uh, we got married then. I continued going to meetings. I, was the young, I wasn't the youngest one there. I was the one who had, her husband had the most sobriety. There was one man, the rest were women. Uh, there was one couple that were, one woman that was a parent, but the rest were wives. And um, I did not feel like I came home either. I did not want to be there. Um, my motivation was totally to support my husband because that's what the good wife would do. And um, I kept doing that for a long time. And in that arena, we started having children. Bob was going to, he was just at meetings all the time. At least that's my memory of it. Um, we had to change all our friends. All of a sudden, our best friends became people that were in their 40s and in their 50s. And I understood that, but it still, you know, it was different. Um, and so what happened to me for the first seven years, in sobriety, with a sponsor, I became angry and resentful and mostly sad. And I just got sadder, and I got sadder, and I got sadder. And... The reason I was in so much pain was that I wasn't working the steps. I was going to meetings to look good. I was going to two meetings a week. And then on the weekends, we at least went to one open meeting. Sometimes, you know, if it was a weekend, we went to more than that. So we, I was going to a lot of meetings. But I wasn't doing anything to change me. Because, see, I wasn't the problem. I was in all this pain, but I didn't recognize that I was the problem or that I had a problem. And finally, oh, you know, and Bob said, we both had a crisis, about seven years. Um, I was in so much pain 
that I decided, you know how you decide all of a sudden, it only took seven years, but (laughs) why don't you work the steps? And Bob said to me, and why don't you work the steps in the order they were written? And any other time, I would have had my cute little Al-Anon remark, you know, you stay out of your, my program, I'll stay out of your program, or whatever. And that particular day, I was, when you said you were standing there crying, that's what was happening to me all the time. I would just start crying. And what was wrong? I didn't know. All I knew was everything was wrong. And I started to work the steps in the order they were written. Up until then, I only worked the steps that I liked, and I didn't like very many of them. (laughs) And at seven years, I started to work the steps. I started to take direction, and I became a member of Al-Anon. And that's when Bob said, you know, I I was very dissatisfied. And who would I blame? Him. But it was easy to blame him because he was out there. I was a person, and I still am. I go to the amusement park, and I watch the ride go by about three or four times till I make a decision whether I'm going to go get the ticket because I have to know what, what to expect. Bob's in line getting the ticket, and I'm the thing before I even know what's happened. But that's just the way we are. So during those seven years, I blamed him for what was going on in our marriage. And it was... Maybe today's the day. (laughs) But it was easy for me to blame Bob because he was more out there. But I was just as responsible, and I was certainly as ill. And I love it when he says, you know, we don't have, I do have more time in Al Anon by what we count because we don't have to count slips. And I looked at that one day and I thought, you know what, how could we ever have 39 years of continuous patience, continuous tolerance, continuous kindness, continuous whatever, but my date reflects more time. And of course, I've had a couple of slips. (laughs) That's just the way it is. (laughs) Um, Bob alluded to the fact that that our children are in the program. And I can't really go there. Um, I can go there at a private level, but I can't do it from the podium. All I know is we have these three kids who are really crazy, and I didn't know if they were going to make it. I didn't know if they were going to kill someone else. Um, There was just a lot of pain in those years. And uh, when Bill sobered up, it was just fantastic. And then Peter comes along, and he made Bill look easy. Um, Peter was looked worse. He was out there more. He, his alcoholism was much more blatant, I think. And then Bill's, or Peter sobered up, and my God, you know, how could we be so blessed? And there's a difference in, of eight and a half years between Peter and Daniel. And so Daniel was this little cute kid, you know, running around at home, He's attention deficit and learning disabled, and he wasn't an easy little kid, but he was a cute little kid, and he was a good little guy. And and um, we knew, or I knew we'd never have to do this again. I mean, two out of three? Come on. And um, we did. We had to do it again. And um, Daniel was... <laughs> On his bike, we wouldn't let him get his, a license because I said, we're not going to have another kid out there riding, driving a car. 
under the influence. So he's on his bike in a different part of the neighborhood doing a drug run, and he gets hit by a van, hit and run, and he's in a coma. And we told the doctors when we went down to, to meet the doctor and, and see him that he had um, marijuana in his system. We knew he smoked marijuana. Well, the next morning when we went, he was just a walking medicine chest. And um, through the grace of God and through the program and through you, because, you know, as parents, we aren't the ones who get the message to our kids. We can carry the message, but you're the one who they listen to. And so because of you, Daniel celebrated eight years last May. And um, we are just so blessed. We are so blessed. Um, We have a good marriage. We have fun. We get to do these things. Oh, yeah, we, um, Bob said talk about dating. That was one of the things that when we hit that seven-year mark, we were both just sort of raw and stale, and um, we loved each other. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't the issue. But we were always talking about bills and kid problems. And that's, like Bob says, that isn't how we fell in love. And so I don't know where you got the idea, but it was Bob's idea that I don't know whether it was from that counselor we went to. We've gone to counselors over the years, and at that time we did go to a counselor. And um, we set aside one night a week to date, and we had to go out. I'm so glad we didn't have cell phones then because we had to go out to get away from the kids, and we would get dressed up. And we didn't have a lot of money, so we went to this one Mexican restaurant. And I'd have a couple of drinks, and we'd have nachos, and we'd have our one little thing. And I think we got out of there for like $15 with a tip. And um, But we would go, and we could not talk about kids or bills. We had to just be together. And at first, you know, it was a little bit awkward. But boy... It got unawkward real fast, and we really looked forward to that one night a week. And when Bob did an AA weekend, we would do it another night. We just didn't let that pass. And I think that was one of the things that allowed us to get back to having fun together and to get out of the, you know, to take off the cap of being mom and dad and AA and Al-Anon and and all the other different, you know, things that we do, um, worker um, and to just be with each other. And that was just probably, it was certainly one of the best things we ever did. And boy, I recommend it to everybody. Um, our kids are Bill and Ellie, who are married. And, um, they do it. They have a date night every once a week. And, um, you know, you, you just want to have more. I mean, you, just <laughs> you almost have to keep it in, in perspective. Um, our life is full and it's rich. And it's wonderful, and it's because of Alcoholics Anonymous and then because of Al-Anon, and that is what I fought so hard. I fought against AA. I didn't like it because what it was doing, it was taking my husband away from me. And what I wasn't seeing is what is giving me my husband. And I was going to those meetings for all those years, but I never told anybody what was wrong. How can you go to a meeting when you're sitting with people when 70% of them are living in active alcoholism and I'm complaining because my husband's going to too many meetings? And yet, you know what? It was killing me. 
And yet I, I couldn't, I just couldn't. I couldn't put the words around that because it seemed so unselfish and so, or so selfish and so ungrateful. And yet it was, I was, you know, I was dying. And we didn't have balance. And I think Bob would agree with that too. And yet I know now looking at it, he needed to go to that many meetings and to be that active for his recovery. You have, a, you have balance. <laughs> he does have balance. We both have balance, but we didn't then. And um, we now, you know, we do. And that's what, with the program, that's what the afterward for me is about. Um, I guess I live life in a gentle way. And I used to have to fight everything. I felt like I had to always stake my claim. And I always had to get my way or try to get my way. And now, Pat said it so well, if I just say what I need and I don't get it, it's okay. But what I used to do, and I'm an only child and I learned this, I used to think that he should know what I needed and then do it because he loved me. And one day my sponsor, Marceline, said to me, what made him a mind reader? (laughs) And it was like she hit me. Well, of course. And then it seemed so stupid. And of course it was being self-centered and it was being young and it was was learning about everything. But um, today I'm just filled with gratitude. And today, I absolutely, positively love Alana. Thank you. We have gifts for our speaker. I know you're anxious. Linda, Thank you. welcome. 